Welcome to episode 78 of Control the Controllables. Today we have the LTA head of women's tennis, Ian Bates. Myself and Ian go back a long time actually. We, he's, I have to say he's a, he's a year older than me. Uh, but we, we played a lot in the juniors. We travelled travelled the world together. And yeah, I've kind of watched as he's, his career has taken him into lots of lots of different roles, uh, including including the team manager at the Olympics, which is a, a, a one that he talks about in, in detail. Uh, Fed Cup coach, he's heavily involved with the Fed Cup team and, and now head of women's tennis at the LTA. Uh, he's, a, he's a good guy, Ian. Uh, there's some... There's some ribbing. There's a lot of north-south divide ribbing in the podcast. Uh, I tried to challenge him on on a few areas, and hopefully uh, you guys can can take from these podcasts. I'm trying to get some thoughts provoked, and fair play to to Ian for coming on. He's in the firing line a line a little bit as as head of women's tennis within the organisation that is the federation in within the country. And I thought he does a really good job of, of answering the questions that were asked. Uh, there's obviously some things that we don't fully agree on. Uh, there's certain things that I'm not sure what my full stance is. Uh, but I know that these things should be challenged. And that we should really look into different ways of doing things and have an open mind in this area and I, and I think you'll see that from the chat that we do delve into some topics that I'm sure people will have lots of different opinions on uh, but I urge everyone to continue keep an open mind it's good to have these open and honest chats and I hope you guys take as much from them as I do having them so I'm going to leave you guys now with Ian Bates So Ian Bates, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing, young man? I'm very good. Thank you. Um, thanks for having me on um, in following your um, successes with this podcast over the last few months. So well done for that. Um, hopefully this is another good one. We'll get into success measures later. I don't know how we measure success. If If we're measuring success on me spending four hours a day talking tennis with a bunch of old pals then it's been it's been a massive success but how 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 else we're going to define success on it I don't know but it's an absolute pleasure I know we've obviously kind of touched base on this a, a few times um I've had to wait for another lockdown to come in before I can before I can nail you down but I do notice those doors behind you that you are still at the NTC so what does that mean around lockdown is that an elite sport thing you can recognise these doors anywhere, can't you? Yeah. Um, they are definitely a very much a part of the fabric of this place. Um, yeah, so lockdown kicked in yesterday. So I guess it's Friday today. So the national lockdown here started Thursday. Um, but I guess the beauty, if that's the right terminology this time around, is it's not the first play in the book. So yeah. we've been here before. Um, and in order to open in previous times, we had to have all our operating procedures that were... COVID safe and were signed off by our medical officers and I think again with DCMS that we could stay open as an elite bubble um, and I think it's been pretty clear in um, in the communications here that elite sport will continue 
Therefore, yeah. because we are elite, an elite training venue that has the procedures in place, we're able to stay open, which you know, it's a huge advantage for players that you know can continue to play. Certainly, those that live around the London area, that almost is there's part of it that feels business as usual um, when you're out and around the courts. But then you know you walk into the car park or the other end of the building for those that know the National Tennis Centre, mm-hmm. and suddenly you realise it's not quite such normal times. Um, but it's good to be here, um, you know, despite the, the huge challenges that the country faces that, that we're able to carry on. So in terms of in terms of the workers at the NTC, how does it classify as being involved in elite? Is that just the coaching team, the performance team? If you're on the marketing team, does that mean you have to stay away and work from home? How, how is that defined? I mean, of course, that's a much wider decision for the business more generally. But for, for what I know from a performance perspective, you know, we've had to, I guess, identify those players with, oh, sorry, those people, sorry, with player-facing roles. Um, so very much our coaching team or our, our coaching staff, our S&C coaches, uh, physios, medics, you know, people that you would expect to be in an elite bubble um, yeah. are still coming in and accessing the building. Um, but yeah, the other end of the building, in terms of marketing, finance, you know, all those work people can work at home. You know, yeah. they don't have to have the same kind of player-facing roles that, that we do. Um, therefore, work can be done fully at home. And then that's the same as any other organization currently, that if you can do your job fully from home, then then you should do so. Yeah, yeah. Just so you know, I'm I'm so I wasn't trying to delve into who's who's been furloughed and who's not been furloughed <laughs> there. I was it was purely coming. I was coming from a a government standpoint in terms of what the government is allowing and deeming to be to, to be able to go into work. I guess. So Ian Bates, ATP seven six two at your very highest. Um. Also, it doesn't say it on the ATP website, but put in more miles than any other player ever on the satellite tour, running around scurrying for balls, <laughs> um, and is is now the LTA head of women's tennis. Um, has, has achieved lots, has been on a, on a real journey through his time. I remember myself and Ian go back a long way. I remember us doing America trip in 1993. As a, as a player, I'm sure we've been on lots of trips together and it's been it's been fantastic to just watch you grow into all the different roles you've done, Ian, and you know, you've had a fantastic career so far. Um, as with all of these podcasts, I guess I, I, guess I just want to, I want to try and get across before we get into the good stuff and what you have achieved and what you are doing. Why tennis? How did it start? You know, almost like how was the seed planted when you were younger? Um, well, I mean, tennis wasn't in my family. Yeah. Um, but my parents were both squash players. Um, so very much, a, I guess, a racket sport background. Um, and we relocated south um, when my dad's job changed. Um, and of course, like... Most parents are looking to get your kids involved with something that means you can carry on doing what you do. Yeah. Um, so my, I think my dad chopped me down a squash racket and chucked me onto the court next to where they'd be playing and I'd just start whacking and bashing the ball around. Um, and clearly my parents realised that I enjoyed it um, and I had some decent coordination. Um, and that coincided with short tennis courses that they saw advertised where we would move to and were living. So they chucked me in into that. And, and that's where it all started really. And 
and I guess short tennis became like everybody their journey into playing more tennis competitively you know I remember being involved in some of the uh, the early stuff at Wimbledon where you'd have a short tennis marquee and you'd get invited to go in and do a demonstration of short tennis at Wimbledon and how can your passion for the sport not be ignited by having an opportunity like that as a as a young kid um, and I guess then to be truthful that the Staying in the sport is, is often relying on a number of things. One, it's access to good clubs and good facilities, which I was lucky to have. And secondly, I had a really good first coach. My first coach was unbelievably passionate, was just believed in having fun on the court, and it just made it an environment that I wanted to be part of. And I guess that combination of factors meant that I was hooked. Um, and yeah, I guess like everybody, tennis goes from there, doesn't it? If you've got those facilities, you've got a good coach, you've got people to play with, um, your journey starts. And, you know, the, 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 the more I played, the more I got hooked, it's like everything, the, the more you play, the better you get. And, and, and that was my route into the sport. Um, but for sure, without access to a good club initially and the good facilities and a really good coach, um, you know, who knows if I would have stayed in the game, but, but that was certainly my initial route in. Who was the coach? The coach was a guy called Brian Farelli, okay. who hasn't worked much more in performance. Um, but he, I mean, he himself was a, a bit of an entrepreneur. He opened a, he put together one of the first indoor bubbles, certainly in the Hampshire area where I grew up. You know, he managed to convince, he was on a, a local farm. He had a two court center where he put a dome over it and it suddenly created an indoor facility, which meant tennis could be played all year round. Um, and gradually over time, that business has grown, it's got outdoor courts, um, but he's very much stayed in that environment. But yeah, he was um, a real tennis guy and, and, and yeah, his enthusiasm and passion. And, you know, when I think back, some of the things he did to ignite that passion, it's so obvious. I mean, you know, I remember one early thing he did was he had like a Davis Cup day, you know, and at nine or 10 years old, we were each delegated to a country and we were having to research the players from that country and we had opening ceremonies and it, it was just great, you know, and I'm sure there's so many examples of, that I could give of the sort of stuff that he did. Um, you know, I remember him kind of making mini tennis world champions and having a crown that used to get passed around the squad every Saturday morning, depending on who won the top court of a Saturday morning. Yeah, it was just stuff that as a young lad, you know, engaged in tennis. It was just great. It's just yeah. always something going on. And it was that environment that stimulated me. So, yeah, he was a big part of my journey. Well, if you're listening, Brian, well done. That's a big, <laughs> uh, big compliment that you've been given there. And we've talked about this a lot in podcasts, how we don't always see the fruits of our labour in this sport until, you know, quite often, often late on. So I hope Brian's got a got a big smile on his face right now. Um. In terms of, you said something where my ears pricked up and you said that you moved south. So where, where from? Where did it start with? You actually broke up down there, but you said you moved south. I thought you knew this. No, so, so you moved south from where? Well, I was born in Darlington, which is scarily close to your roots. Oh, I do. That does. So you are a northerner after all of the years. Steady, steady, steady. I may have been born in a northerner. <laughs> So this um, is it, but this is a serious question now, and, and it's probably a bit of a uh, potentially close to the bone question. But would you have had your same journey if you lived in Darlington all your life than being a Hampshire boy in tennis? Do you think? 
I mean, you talk about an impossible question to answer. I mean, the, I guess it goes back to my previous answer. My parents were squash players. Yeah. They clearly would have got me involved in a racket sport in some way. And I assume I would have shown the same aptitude for it and been the same annoying six or seven year old wanting yeah. something to participate in. So I assumed that I would have done something, but clearly what would have been different is I wouldn't have been exposed to the same people or the same yeah. clubs or the yes. same structures. You know, and we yeah. just spent a bit of time there talking about um, Brian. But at the same time, you know, you get to 11 or 12 and the next thing happens for you. And yeah. suddenly I've got Simon Jones coming on the scene as my rover coach. Yeah. You know, he wouldn't, I wouldn't have been on his patch if I hadn't, you know, if yeah, I just, we'd course. stayed up in the Northeast. So there's so many things that, yeah. that, that I think you could not positive, possibly say I would have had the same journey if yeah. we'd stayed um, in the north. I'd have certainly played more tennis in Middlesbrough, I would imagine, or at Castle Farm. It'd have been yeah. one of the one of I the think it was I think it's a poor question I ask and, and I hold my hands up to that. And I think my quick reflection on why I've asked the question is I probably have a little bit of like yeah, a bit of a negative probably towards the tennis world of the north and south, you know, and I'm not really someone to normally bring that stuff up or or to get too involved in that. But I guess even if I take take the academy out in Spain, I've got loads of coaches from the northeast. And if they're listening, they'll not like this either, but they're cheaper. <laughs> they're, they're brilliant, but they're, I do think it is a little bit harder to be noticed just naturally. And I'm sure it'll be the same in France if you've got the big things happening in Paris. And if you're from a little bit more of the outer skirts of, of France, naturally, you may be not in that circle as much. And I would say there's probably some people that are very cynical on that point, but I, probably there is some lesser opportunities. Or when I was growing up, I mean, Darlington, there was actually a place called Topspin, which was an old aircraft hangar. But in reality, the regional centre was Sheffield, which was two and a half to three hours away. You know, mm -hmm. and it, it, I think it's, it's, it's very interesting. But I think you, you've answered it very well because it comes back to people. You know, it comes back to people and the people that influence you. And, and obviously, Brian was a big influence on you. And then it, it's, it's moved from there, really. And did you, how early on did you want tennis to be your thing did you did you really passionately want to be a player obviously you were my memory was you were certainly one of the best in the country under 12 under 13 under 14 um i don't really know to be honest i mean if i if i reflect back i would probably say well i wanted to be a tennis player the first time i ever went to wimbledon you know, I remember, you know, that being around kind of probably 85, 86, when Boris Becker won at 17, 85. You know, I remember being on a family trip to Munich and bugging my mum to go and buy me a Boris Becker T-shirt. You know, it's yep. it's kind of, it, it, that was where, you know, you want to play tennis. I mean, when did I think I was any good or if I ever was any good? I mean, you kind of get to those kind of 12, 13, 14 year old times, don't you? And you start traveling a little bit internationally, you know, I remember doing all the stuff that we do still a little bit now, but you kind of go to, you know, the under 14 tournaments in Italy, or you go to the under 14 tournaments in Germany during the course of the summer, and suddenly you're exposed to this whole new, um, you know, environment where tennis has been something you've played locally or certainly nationally, and suddenly you've opened up this whole new world. And it's something that's exciting and hugely motivating. And I think as juniors, you can have obviously a level of success, certainly domestically quite quickly, that gives you a, I guess, a, a dream to pursue. 
And I guess my mentality with that was, you know, you gave me a bit of stick early on about covering the most miles on the satellite circuit. You're clearly not the first person to give me stick about my playing style. Um, but it was also driven by you know, hard work and, you know, really wanting to achieve what I could. Therefore, I kind of wanted to achieve in the game whatever I felt that I could. And, and you know, as, as the years evolved, you know, I got to the age of 16. Um, you know, I'd won the Nationals that year. I think I took you out somewhere in the in the draw that year. I actually searched head-to-head Bates v. and didn't get very far because clearly the LTA's records don't go back that far. Um, but, you know, you, you're in a position where you've, you know, you've won the Nationals. Um, you know, that summer I won uh, playing with James Trotman, the European champs and doubles. You know, you're having some notable kind of achievements. So why would you not give yourself a chance of, of pursuing a career? And, and I guess at, at that point, I was given a, a chance to go and train in Bath, yeah. um, which was clearly a big part of my life as, as or became a big part of my life, as, as you know. And, you know, even at that point, you know, you're giving yourself a chance to play professional tennis, but you still don't really know what's entailed. You still don't really know how good you've got to be. Even if you say, oh, I'm going to play full-time tennis, you still, you know, can't kind of comprehend just the, the amount of hard work, the levels you've got to go through, even still chasing that dream of, I want to be tennis to be my life. I just wanted to achieve the most I could as a player because I loved it. Mm. And I wanted to do, you know, and I wanted to achieve my dreams. Ultimately, that never happened on the playing side. But, you know, I just wanted to play tennis. Mm-hmm. Do you think, now, because obviously you are so heavily involved still, do you think the landscape looks completely different now? And, and I guess if you almost kind of flitter between you as a European champion, eh? I mean, that's, you I mean, uh, that actually I'd forgotten that, you know, so European champion under 14, you know, someone who is is doing extremely well in the game. It sounds like you almost didn't feel the pressures of that. It was just, you were just doing it, you know, and I certainly, that would be my reflection of, you know, we won Tarbs, quarterfinals, Orange Bowl, but I never really thought it was anything. It just was what it was. If we've got a player like that doing that now, I would imagine there's a few more external pressures. Well, I certainly never felt pressure. Um, Whether that was, I guess, from the LTA, or whether that was from my parents, they, I was just playing. They were, you know, I was just being given opportunities to do what I love to do. But I guess at the same time, you know, I remember this pretty well, that I guess it goes back to the days of the Rover scheme. And I remember not being selected for the Rover scheme. And I was gutted. I was absolutely gutted. I didn't feel pressure. I didn't think it was anybody's fault. I was just gutted. And, you know, that gave me, you know, I think I was a rover young challenger at that point instead, which that wasn't, I wanted the jumper. I wanted that jumper with the maroon kind of big rover and the guy serving. That's what I wanted, not something else. And that kind of spurred me on to to to, to improve and to ultimately get that rover scholarship. It sounds ridiculous saying it now. Um, but that wasn't driven by pressure. It was just driven by, I guess, self-drive to want to to improve. But I guess the other thing that I remember from those days was again when I guess you were part of this too with with Bisham and 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 the school and very much the you know being close to Bisham geographically meant I could access and be part of things at Bisham, but I wasn't ever part of it. You know, so there was always still that difference between being in the system and being on the outside of the system, which again I don't think anything was ever really made of it, and there was no pressure at all. But to answer the question more, I guess. 
do I think a player now, well, it's just such a different time, isn't it, mm. Dan? I mean, you know, it, it, it's around people, well, I guess even, even in effect going to play the European Championships at 16 and under, if you weren't selected to go on that trip, you probably wouldn't play much international tennis. Yeah. Whereas now there's always still the opportunity to go and play international tennis, whether you're part of LTA trips or you're doing it yourself. Yeah. And it's just that whole thing that I guess people are more aware of what people are then doing in events. And there's so much more interest in it from whether it's social media, whether it's the media, whether it's, I guess, the collective talking and infrastructure that goes across British tennis. Everybody is just far more aware of what everybody does. Yeah. And that just creates, I think, more of what I think you're alluding to which is everybody's awareness of things. Therefore, people know if you've been selected or not. Nobody would have known if I was selected as a Rover Scholar or a Rover Young Challenger or not. Yet now, if people get selected for something or not, far more people probably know about it. But is that, um, is that not us just forgetting, though? Because if I if I go back, Beatty, I remember, I mean, it was my birthday, granted, but March 27th, 1993, I received the letter to say that I was a Rover Scholar. Mm. Uh, it was a big deal. And and I then, and I remember this really clearly, I that night, or that day, we travelled down to play against the West Midlands, northeast against West Midlands, Coventry, staying in the Campanile Hotel. Yeah. And we sneaked out and were messing around and we got caught out of our room at two o'clock in the morning. And I had complete terror that... Oh my God, I am going to lose my rover. I'm going to lose my rover. I can't believe it. Like, I remember just being like completely now, come on, that's, that's 27 years ago. Do you know what I mean? And, and I also, and I can almost remember to the, to the day uh, and uh, really vividly walking into like nationals or walking into events and people looking at us as if we were like the scumbags of the earth because we were wearing the rover kit, you know? So, maybe I think as we as our mind matures I think maybe we forget actually and yes our our memory is that we just played but if I really think about it I'm not sure at some of those national events or some of those big events I was just playing I think I was very aware of every LTA coach watching I think I was very aware yeah. of all of my peers watching you know and I think I guess I guess with that it's it's probably just part and parcel of the uh, what you've got to deal with as a, as a, as a person in our sport because if, if it's not if it's not that it's a fed cup captain or a davis cup captain or it's a it, later on for me it was my parents you know yeah. watching or somebody and, and i guess you, you it's something that we've got to deal with yeah and i guess you're right in so much of the time we play you're always aware of who is watching because there wouldn't be many others there <laughs> apart from either your parents or i guess at that time you know the rover coaches yeah and you're right i mean it's look you're right it's good reflections isn't it because you you kind of it's the first time i've been asked about my playing side of my i guess career <laughs> for a very long time so for sure you forget a lot of the realities of that and, and unfortunately as you said it's now a very long time ago sadly but now if we flip it, you are like the daddy of all rover coaches. I mean, you're the, you're the head of women's tennis. Uh, do, you, do you understand just your, what your presence brings to players when you're at events? Is that something that you've reflected on? That's a good question because the answer is no. Yeah. Because to me, I'm just me, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and 
I, I guess you you ultimately hope that you do your business in a way where people perceive you as as who I am rather than what my job title is. You know, and I guess that paints into how you are with people, how you communicate with people, how you, you know, I guess how you go about doing your business. Um, but look, when I connect the two, your question and what I've just said about my own, of course, you're right. Of course, that people are aware of, of, of when you're there or not. But, you know, the funny thing is when you are that person and you realize what exactly you are thinking at a given moment, you realize how ridiculous some of the stuff that you used to think when you were yeah. playing actually was. Yeah. Because... If I'm at an event, what am I thinking? I want the person that I'm watching, hey, what, I want to see them competing. Yeah. I want to see them, that, they, that their game's improving and they're moving on. And you know what? I want what, I want to win. You know, yeah. what, what, what's most important for, for British tennis? I'm not thinking about, oh dear, look at that slice back and they've so clearly not been working on their, technically on the court well enough. You know, it, it's just the, the, the thoughts that are in your head at events are so different. Um, so yeah, to answer the question, no, I don't reflect on that in that way. But um, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I just think it's it's quite an interesting one because again, I would, I, I've said this to we've had a couple of tennis parents, I guess, on with Judy and um, you know, and we speak, I speak to parents about this all the time. That, and I've mentioned this on podcast when I played Wimbledon, it was my parents that that were the ones I was nervous for. And that is zero, like when I say zero, like almost minus to do with them. <laughs> you know, they couldn't have been yeah. any more supportive. They couldn't have, you know, they absolutely put nothing on me other than behavior. You know, that I knew that I had to behave, but yeah. I had no external pressure coming from them, except I felt so much pressure them watching me. <laughs> because it's like I just wanted to make them proud I just want you know that it was such a strong emotion that I felt and I think it's an important one for parents to understand that just their presence alone and I guess my thing a little bit with yourself is is also it's that as well you head of women's tennis and and I've had lots of dealings with you and I think you do a fantastic job of of coming across and you know and and and, and taking some of that away you know, and, and just dealing with the person and dealing with the human, and, and, and I really do. However, there will be a weight that comes with Ian Bates, head of women's tennis, being, being in the building. You, you as a professional player, so you, so, so you went from, I guess, Bath from an early, an early age, and then you just, did you just then play full-time at Bath? Or did you go to University of Bath? I did both, Dan. Right, okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the I went to Bath at the age of 16. Um, uh, initially, as I say, purely with a playing brief. And I was part of the national squad that was there at that time. The coaches Tito? were... Tito? No, no, jeepers, your history timeline's way out. Oh, really? Simon Jones. Okay. And Peter Russell. Oh, wow, okay, yeah. They were the two coaches that were leading the program at that point. Yep. Um, and I'm trying to think what other players were there at that time. It's where my mind probably goes a little bit blank. Um, but it was kind of really part of that LTA squad program. And, and it was at a time when the University of Bath doesn't look anything like it does now. You know, there was no indoor courts on site. So we came into this bubble where the director of sport at the time, Jed Roddy, was really looking to, I guess, grow sport on the campus at Bath as to how we know it now. 
and we used to get the bus down the hill every day from the university to um, an indoor bubble in Victoria Park in Bath. Okay. Um, and that was how that started, um, you know, back in back in those days. But then I, so I played there for a couple, you know, probably three or four years, actually, um, you know, and, and was on the same journey that you, that you were on playing ITFs, you know, playing junior slams to 18, trying that transition or starting that transition into back in those good old days, satellites and the, the four week grinds to wherever it was you chose to go. Um, Ilkley Felix Zornfrenton. <laughs> the one that I always remember is I played back-to-back satellites in Turkey one year. Um, and it's just that fear of not making the Masters and suddenly having that dead week where you kind of, <laughs> A, you've made no points from the circuit and you just had a, a dead week in Istanbul because travel isn't what it's like now where you literally yeah. just hop back on a plane and you go back again. Yeah. I didn't have the money to do that, that's for sure. But I remember picking up $43 for losing in the first round, which is something I did quite a lot and you're looking at the madness of it and you know you're you're in Turkey where your expenses are probably off the charts you've got 10 weeks to grind it out and you picked up $43 um but so it kind of got to that point for me and you you referenced my you know my ranking of whatever I'm sure that's a bit of a harsh the ITF system obviously wasn't as up to date week to week and it was only year end for best of at 762 um I like to think it was at least 740 um but you know, it kind of to me became mundane. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm I'm, I'm a thinker. I've got an active brain. I, I was starting to find it challenging, um, and um, you know, I was I was fortunate that I was in a university environment. And one of the initiatives that um, Jed Roddy, the, the aforementioned director of sport at that time, was 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 keen to pursue was how he kind of got a lot of the athletes that have started training in Bath into the academic programs too. To I guess ultimately strengthen the. The, the university sport level with the of the university because yeah. that clearly was meeting some of their objectives but equally to give athletes the chance to have another string to their bow i guess an early kind of performer first or person first approach um and i got the opportunity to be part of one of those programs um you know in an early academic program that transitioned into a uh, an undergrad ba in sports coaching um so over four years, I kind of I committed to that when I was around 1920, um, did the extra year, not three year undergrad, did a four year program and, and, and graduated. Then after four years um, at Bath with a with a first class honours degree in, in coming out of out of there. So, yeah, it was um, certainly when I walked through the doors there at 16, I never thought that would be how it would evolve. Um, but it was yeah, a huge opportunity that I was given by the by the university. You must know every bar in Bath inside out after all those years, huh? Well, you know, the funny thing is, um, we obviously went back to play Fed Cup there last year or the year before, and I thought I'd had my last Domino's, late night Domino's pizza from the takeaway in Bath. Um, But given we were finishing after midnight much of that week, I had the number still saved in my phone, so I was favourite numero uno from the rest of the group. Um, But yeah, I, I, I know a few of them, but... Again, those that know me will know I'm probably not the one to be at the front of the party as it goes on long into the night. I'm more likely to be the one saying I'm going to the loo and making my way home. Um, but yeah, certainly saw a fair few establishments over my years there. And was that the case, not to bring your whole party life out on, on a podcast, Betsy, but was that the case from a young age with you? you that you just actually that that part of life, I guess, didn't didn't interest you so much? Um, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, 
I guess it comes back to some of my early answers. You know, I, I, I was I was wanting to play tennis, and that was what that was what drove me. You know, even though in fact I found myself in in Bath, living in halls of residence at seventeen and eighteen, and and, and those people around around us were clearly living a different life to what we were living. You know, I, I, yeah, I've just never really been one for the one for that. I mean, I, I you know, it's it's it's, um, it's not saying I don't enjoy a night out, but um, yeah, the student scene was never really for me. But again, part of that Dan was because I became a student when I was twenty. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd almost lived my life before I became a student. Therefore, it, it wasn't really my cup of tea by that point. I was yeah. already, um, you know, had a settled girlfriend who became my wife. Yeah. Um, so it was just a very different, you know, I had a very different experience, I guess. Yeah. No, and I think tennis players in general, in general, do do probably grow up a little bit faster. I think we're kind of fast tracked a little bit into and that really hit me when I went to American University. You know, at 18, I'd probably seen 55 countries and, you know, seen a lot of the world and actually probably had my nights out to a degree, you know, like, and there I was, all these kind of young, well, it's the same age as me, girls and boys from Louisiana who, mm -hmm. who had never seen a, a pint of beer before and, and didn't know whether to drink it or to shove it on their head or to put it up their nose or put it in their ear. And they probably did all of the above <laughs> and went completely wild for two years. And it, it was certainly a little bit um, eye-opening actually on, on that whole kind of, whoa, that you, you guys haven't seen a lot. And I think it's sometimes something we, we take for granted in, in the tennis world of just how mature and grown up our lives naturally have to become from quite a young age if we are on that journey of traveling the world and doing doing what we did as juniors i think that's right i mean if you you know you're ever talking about transferable skills that you that you acquire by playing tennis i mean they're off the scale yeah you know it's not just the maturity that you that comes from traveling it's just that discipline that's in your life it's the communication with other people it's the interactions with people from across the world you know when we were kids there was no facebook or mobile phones or even email therefore the only way you could create any relationships was to talk to people yeah and you know again i i definitely reflect back and and, and certainly those years we spent traveling as juniors and even though you know, the ridiculous thing of earning 43 dollars in week one of a 10-week trip to turkey well, it kind of teaches you a lot of lessons, right? I mean, it's not only around budgeting, it's around gratitude to those who are giving you support, probably coming from my parents by that point. Um, but, you know, going into a, a store and buying a loaf of bread and a pot of Nutella is the way to kind of manage your budget for a week. I mean, yeah. You know, that's the kind of stuff that you used to do. You know, it's mad when you think about it now when where we are, I guess, in sport generally across the board, not just tennis. Yeah, not very good. And... Your bath journey didn't end there, though, did it? So you you went into lecturing for a while. Is that correct? Yeah. It is correct. Um, well, I guess I guess to the point of, of of as a student, first of all, I guess you know I, I reckon I played serious tennis for a year when I was a student. Yeah. You know, I think I combined that first year where I was doing a much lower level academic course to still travel a lot, still compete a lot on what I, I would almost deem myself. I'm playing full time tennis. I'm just doing an academic course at the same time. But by the end of the first year in the academic side, I started to get a lot more serious. That's when my coaching journey started. Okay. Because it was at that point where I want to bridge and transition here away from playing. And, you know, I was at this brilliant facility where there was so much going on from a tennis perspective, whether that was 
um, the community program of the university, whether it was Wiltshire County training, whether it was the LTA National Academy that was working there, I was able to get kind of stuck into all those three different parts of the program in my early coaching time. But when I graduated, you know, I guess my view on, I guess my view on being a student at all was that I'm doing this to give myself more skills than simply the ones, if I was going to go straight into coaching, I could have gone from playing to coaching and I don't need to invest four years of my life in yeah. um, pursuing a, you know, a higher education or whatever the terminology was. So I really, at the end of that, really, I wanted to feel like I was going to experience something else. I wanted to be part of something else. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something that didn't necessarily involve rackets and balls. Yeah. Um, and I was given the opportunity to join the teaching staff when I, um, when I graduated. Um, and I was lecturing in primarily coaching related topics on some of the foundation uh, degree courses and some of the undergraduate courses at the university. Um, I was still combining that with my coaching. So again, in, in, in that time, I was still doing some hours for Wiltshire uh, County staff. I was doing some work for Simon Jones at the um, LTA Academy at that time, but kind of the majority of my week was spent in the classroom. And, you know, at that point, I loved the academic side of coaching. I loved it because I'd spent three or four years kind of immersed in coaching as an academic discipline, as much as a, you know, a practical thing that we know more about now. You know, I got right into all kind of you know, coaching styles, learning styles, how to get the best out of learners, understanding more coaching from an educational background because the degree was overseen by the education department. So there was, it was so kind of diverse around things that we wouldn't have experienced just by going through a normal coach education journey. So it felt normal that I'd extend that. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, if, if, if I hadn't had my playing career and then done that, I may now be a, I mean, I don't know, heaven forbid, I ended up in that, no, that's a bit unreasonable. This almost takes not a great career, but I could have been a, I may not have come back into coaching. I might have stayed in academics and I may have gone on and done a master's or a post-grad or, yeah. or whatever it may have been, because had I been 21 or 22 at that time, that could have been, that was my passion at that time, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I needed to earn some money because I was mid to late twenties and, you know, I needed to, <laughs> I, I didn't have time to waste going back and doing further study. Yeah. Um, so the other big point for me at the end of my teaching side was, well, you know what, I'm teaching here. I'm talking about coaching, but at the end of the day, I'm not really passionate anymore about the content. My life is about yeah. tennis. Yeah. So I really want to, I want to be practical here. I want to be coaching. I don't want to be in front of 50 students talking to them about, how to teach or how to coach i want to do it myself and at that point it coincided with a job opportunity at, at uh, the national academy yeah um that i went for and that i got and and the rest is history i moved away from the the, the teaching side and i started i guess prioritizing my coaching um career and, and it went from there i can't help connect the answer to your last question to the answer to that question so you didn't spend a whole lot of time in the bars, but you that but you did start thinking about your life <laughs> and how many how many people go to university and just get through it, spend their time in the bars, come out of university thinking, no idea what I'm gonna do next. You know, and I think it's it's quite a special thing you've said there that you you at the age of 18, 19, 20 were already saying, right, I want to experience something a little bit different here to, to give myself a bit more of a well-rounded outlook on, on this life, which, which I would imagine 
has opened up a lot of doors for you in the rest of your career when we get into some of the Olympic team manager stuff, when we get into the, the Fed Cup, we get into those roles that require more than just tennis knowledge and tennis coaching knowledge. Um, and it's, I think it's really impressive that you recognise that at such a young age, really. Yeah, and, and again, a lot of it is probably a consequence of the environment I was in. You know, I was in a university environment. You know, Heather, who was my girlfriend, had been a student. She'd graduated from with her mathematical degree or whatever it was. My friends were students. You know, I remember, you know, one of my good pals, Stuart Rhodes, was part of the tennis team. He was at the university at that time. You know, yeah. it was normal in the circle that I had. So much as yes. I'd like to say I just had that level of personal self-drive myself, it was also a consequence of the people that were my friends and yeah. who I was living my life with, um, for sure. Um, it's an even better message. It's an even better message because they say that, don't they? Who you surround, the, you know, the five people that you spend the most time with is who you ultimately become, you know, so choose choose carefully. Yeah. How is, yeah. how, how is Stuart Rhodes? He's good. Yeah, he's good. I, I, found, I found an absolute brilliant picture at home on the weekend. Well, you know, I think like most of us, every time we've been back to our parents' house pre and post the lockdowns, my mum and dad have been clearing the loft and every time I go, there's more photographs they want yeah. me to get rid of. And she said, you one, you'll remember it. Where it's, um, and the roadie was in the picture and I, there's two people, I didn't know who they were, but it was just this classic picture that had people ranging from Ian Hughes to myself to Alan Mackin, uh, John Monk, um, Louise Herbert, I think it might be yeah. Jeff Bone. You, know, yeah. you look at these people and still so many of them that we, we, we know some yeah. that we've lost contact with, but to your Stuart question, he's great. I mean, I, I actually stay with him every year during Wimbledon. Right. Um, it's, he's got a, he's, he's living in Wimbledon uh, with his wife and two kids. Um, he'll, he'll be a good one to get on the podcast because talking about success measures, I know he's gone on and been very successful in his field, you know, and I'll be really interested on how much he does attribute down to uh, the skills he picked up from tennis, you know, and I think it, uh, I like to showcase those stories, those stories as well. And when did you eventually get away from Bath then? I mean, this was what, 12 years, 12, 13 years that you spent there pretty much? Yeah, not far off, not far off. Um, well, it was actually at the time when um, Roger Draper started as CEO of the LTA and yeah. um, the National Academy closed in Bath. So it's 2007, I think that was. Okay. Um, maybe later I kind of lose track of the years. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess it was a decision point for us because it was, there was a number of jobs going at the LTA, as you know, at that time, or you'll yeah. remember, you know, you had Carl May starting as the head of women's tennis and Paul Hutchins starting as the head of men's tennis and they were building new teams here um, yeah. at the LTA. Whereas in Bath, there was a choice of, there, it, was, it was an unknown because it was at the time when the decentralized approach was going to kick in and Bath was going to become either an, an HPC or an IHPC, so an international high performance center or a high performance center. But it was still very unknown about how that transition from, um, how that transition from LTA Academy to private academy was going to happen. And, you know, one of the big things for me has always been the people I've had the chance to be around and work with. And that's been a massive part of my development as a coach and as a person, as I guess we've just touched on in, in a different walk of life. But I was really passionate, wanted to come and work either with Carl or Paul. Yeah. Um, Carl, because 
again, I think quite like-minded to me in a way, very kind of academic in his thinking and very kind of structured in his his, yeah. his way of thinking. And I really like that because again, this is still yeah. me in my bath mode where you know, I'm, as, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an academic almost in my head as much as I am a, a tennis coach. Uh, or Paul, and who wouldn't want to work for Paul? Um, you know, a great opportunity to be around somebody with so much history in British tennis. So I actually applied for jobs as a national coach on both the girls' side and the boys' side. Um, was successful on the girls' side, and 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 that took me away. Um, and yeah, that was the big decision at that point to either stay and be part of the new Bath program. And you know what? I'm really glad I made that call. I mean, not just because I've had. The opportunities that I've had here, which is easy to reflect back on and say, well, that was a good decision. I think it was as much that it gave me that chance again to break away from the bath um, yeah. um, environment. And that's not to say it's not the best place ever, and I'd love to work there again. Yeah. But it's just given it gave me the chance to break away from yeah, I'm, I'm you know, working in one place. And I guess it's part of that same curiosity about well, what else is out there? What else is there to achieve? What else is there to do? Yeah. And as I reflect back, that was a brilliant moment in time to make that decision. And did you have a preference, honestly, no. to work on the boys' team or the girls' team? No. Um, you know, I, 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 I had, I'd worked with boys and girls, clearly, at the academy in Bath. I'd coached boys and girls yeah. um, in my earlier coaching, be that county coaching, be that club coaching. I'm just like everybody, you know, like, <laughs> there was the same. Um, but, you know, Carl had a big influence on me early on. I learned a lot about women's tennis with Carl and also Nigel Sears, who was the yeah. head coach of women's tennis at that point. Um, and, you know, yeah, and apart from one or two years in the middle, I've been in women's tennis ever since. And do you feel that you're now pigeonholed as a women's tennis coach? <laughs> and if so, how does that make you feel? I, I don't actually. I don't feel it. And I'll tell you why. I don't feel like all of my role currently is coaching. Yeah. You know, a lot of the job that I do and that Leon, my colleague on the men's side does, um, is as much leadership and management actually as it is coaching. Yep. And much as it's all player driven and it's achieving the same thing, it's actually almost managing others to do a lot of that delivery. So I don't necessarily have the identity anymore simply as a, I'm a coach because yes. I've got such a big other element to my day-to-day -day work. And I guess there was also a couple of years ago, um, I wasn't working in women's tennis at all. Um, you know, I was part of um, more the kind of the operational side from a performance team working yeah. across men and women, you know, quite heavily involved in the early days with Simon Timpson putting the strategy together. So I kind of feel like I had a time where I was away from women's tennis. And I think when you put that together with, you know, you mentioned the Olympic role and, and other things, I kind of feel like I've, in my own head, I'm still challenged every day. I mean, Dan, this whole last six or seven months with the, the challenges of, of, of COVID and managing, it doesn't matter if I'm working in men's or women's tennis, the issues are the same. I mean, I'm yeah. clearly representing the player cohort on the women's side and trying to make sure we have the best provision for the support for them. But th these are issues that you could be dealing with if you were the performance director of British Triathlon. You know, yeah, the issues are, are real. So I feel that I'm still very much developing in, in myself because of that. How other people perceive me externally, I have absolutely no idea. Um, but again, I've only been back in this job since December 2018. So I'm only, believe it or not, kind of what, 
what's about essentially approaching two years, although it feels like the last year or so has been treading, not treading water, but you know what I mean, yeah. it's, it's not been a normal year. Yeah. So, so yeah, so the answer is no, um, but as I say, others may beg to differ. And are you a coach or are you a manager then? Well, if you look to the majority of my work this now, I'm currently more of a manager than I am a coach. You know, I walked into the bubble on the clay here yesterday and you had Fran Jones playing in one court and Katie Bolter on the other. And needless to say, the banter straight in, oh, what are you doing on the court? Yeah, <laughs> which kind of tells you all you need to know that yeah. so much of, of, of my time these days, other than things like Fed Cup weeks or whatever else it may be, is, yeah. is, is, is pulling things together. Now, that's not to say, you know, on the balcony of tournaments every week, you still very much got a coaching mindset. But yeah. I would be wrong to say I'm spending much, if not any majority of my time coaching. See, my, um, I think the modern day coach needs to be, I, I break it down into two things. One is, is a developer and, and the second one is a manager, you know, and a, a manager of, you know, I call it the internal team. So the management of the internal team would be, I guess, other coaches, it would be physios, sports psychologists, it would be S&C coaches, then the management of the external team. So that might be yourself as, you know, a yeah. stakeholder, you know, the LTA is a stakeholder, that might be a Fed Cup captain, that might be an agent, a sponsor, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and then and then the family, you know, there's then the family network as well. And, and I just, I do just wonder sometimes how much we educate our coaches on the importance of the management part of the job because <laughs> i i think actually quite often a lot of relationships fall down with coaches and players and coaches and parents because the coach is a bloody good coach a bloody good developer <laughs> but isn't actually managing the the whole team around the player i don't know how much you um i don't really know if that's a question or it's more of a statement i don't know if you have any thoughts on it um, well i think you're right <laughs> Um, firstly, I mean, I can't remember having any formal management training per se as part of my evolution, certainly through the organization. I mean, that's not fair, actually. The, the LTA do do a good job internally, but not as part of my coach development. Yeah. You know, kind of the way I evolved was more using the skills that I think I picked up through those university years of, of dealing with people, of managing situations, of being able to you know, critically evaluate something or have that ability to analyze. And, you know, it just gives you a, an ability to see both sides to an argument to kind of, I don't know, and kind of lead and, and manage in, in that way. That said, I did the um, Future Leaders course, the UK Sport Run a couple of years ago, and it was absolutely brilliant. Um, it was something that uh, Simon Timpson in the early stages got me onto because he'd come out of UK Sport and was aware of it. And I kind of ended up in a small cohort, six or seven people, all who are now performance directors or maybe one who's not who works at the BOA performance director in their own domain and just went through a real kind of leadership heavy development course that was very practical in how it was structured and delivered and it was absolutely brilliant I absolutely loved it because yeah. you know it's that kind of open mind that I think I've always had being tested in a different way yeah. you know they were brilliant at creating life scenarios with the training that they were giving you you know I remember the um one of them was around managing athletes for example, conflict with athletes. And, you know, they brought in a real athlete panel from other sports and it was chaired by one of the girls who'd won gold in the GB Rio hockey team. And they gave you a hockey scenario in a live situation, which again, if I think about that experience and that alone, I remember what that is. 
Yeah. But if you could ask me what I did as part of my coaching, my own coach development, nothing, yeah. <laughs> nothing like that. And you know, I'm not sure if that's relevant or not in answering yeah. your question. But I think it's, and I think to be to be honest, what I've seen from Nick Wheel in the time when he's been in the head of a performance coaching job, I think he gets that too. And I'm sure we'll yeah. see that evolve. Yeah, no, I can see that already coming through, even in Spain, obviously from conversations and things being picked up. I, I can really see Nick who we're getting on the podcast in the next, I think he's on next week or the week after. The practicality of coaching seems to be coming through loud and clear. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see what Nick's got got to say. I'm sure it's going to be fascinating. Um, so I'm now going to pigeonhole you. Um, you aren't pigeonholed, but I'm going to, uh, we're going to go into, into women's tennis because obviously I guess my first question is, if we talk about women's tennis, men's tennis, are they different? And if so, how? You know, trends in the women's game that, you know, I don't know, was currently first four shots of the rally, 70% of points are finished. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure what the equivalence that on the men's is probably equally as high. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the, the way in which those points are won and lost is different. You know, the prevalence of the importance of second serve return on the women's side, the importance of keeping your first serve ball three percentage and win percentage really high, you know. There's so many similarities, but there's also so many differences because the way the game is played is, is fundamentally different. I mean, I'm not sure how much in depth you want me to go to go I into think, that. I think but, for me, Betsy, I think, again, uh, in terms of the listeners, I think what would be really nice to hear would, you know, I think sometimes you're, you're ingrained in elite tennis. You know, that's your that's your world. That's your, I would imagine, I know you're a hard worker, so it's not an eight-hour day, it's a 12-hour day. You know, I'm ingrained in not to the elite level of you, but I'm ingrained into a pretty high level of tennis. I would imagine a lot of people listening to these podcasts aren't just coming from that point. So in in, in a very in very basic terms to a to a club player, to someone who is a parent of a young child who doesn't know the sport yet, how would you describe the the, the differences that you maybe seem like it's obvious to you and me? but it's not to them. It's an interesting way of looking at it, Dan, isn't it? Because you're right. So much of what I would do is an assumption that everybody would see the differences. I mean, okay, so tactically, like I say, the, you know, the amount of times I watch women's tennis, for example, and, oh, there's a lot of breaks, isn't there? <laughs> it's a silly example to start with, yeah, yeah. but you know, you'll see a much different kind of prevalence of, of yeah. the, the role of the serve in the game. Now, my view on that would be, well, we've got to make sure that the next generation of players we develop are great servers because there's clearly a performance advantage to be gained in that area you know you're there's the classic stuff of girls will play closer to the baseline they hit the ball flat and hard where the guys will be six feet behind the baseline and playing with much more shape and flight you know that may have been the case a number of years ago but I don't think you need to look too far to the recent French and US Opens to see that that's not the case anymore yeah. you know you've got far more variation coming back into the women's game. You look at Swiatek, who won the French Open, she's coming forward a lot more, she can do everything pretty well, moving pretty well. The athleticism is really improving and increasing across the entire board of, or the, the entire group of players. You know, you had a lot of the traditional oh, women will play a lot of dry volleys. <laughs> you see people hitting dry volleys not connected to the game. Dry volley comes on the back of heavy, hard, aggressive baseline striking where you're in effect trying to use your strengths to outdo your opponent, like the same is in men's tennis as women's tennis. But some of the technical subtleties are different. Some of the tactical subtleties are different. Some of the coaching subtleties are different. 
but the 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 it's not an easy question to answer funnily enough i'm probably not answering it directly but so yeah yeah no i think no i think you answered it right i i, I do i just i guess i i think you've touched on a couple of things there about how there is more variation seems to be more variation coming into the game and obviously these trends are changing are changing all the time you know in is there is there certain things that you've seen over your 12 13 years that you just fundamentally believe will always be important for a female tennis player to do you know so you touched on second serve return so if we so if we build and we kind of double click into tennis a little bit, so I, I always use the example. I um I worked with a Hungarian player and a good junior, and she played against Donna Vekic in the WTA event. And everyone would say Vekic serves big, and you know, maybe Panna doesn't serve so big. The the bottom line is, and I look at these stats all the time, Vekic won 67% of her first serves. Panna won 66% of hers, but Vekic won 52% of her second serves and Panna won 33% of her second serves. And, and I think that's quite a common trend, probably on men and women's tennis, but that's certainly a very common trend that mm-hmm. I believe will never really change in, 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 in the game or certainly in women's tennis. So then that's a that's a big area. Coaches working with, with young girls, your first chance to get that first strike in, second serve return. You know, we can almost tick that box, get that work done. Would you say there's any that you see that are absolutely have to happen in, in the women's game? And then the, there's obviously the more flexible bits that are that are developing all the time. Well, clearly the starting the point is the critical phase in yeah. women's tennis, and it always will be. You yeah. know, and I think that's at two levels. One, I guess I touched on it before, that the serve, I guess one of the misconceptions that you spoke about before is female players will never serve as well as male players. There's always going to be an element of that due to certain physical differences, but there's also no reason why they can't be overcome. You know, so clearly serving is of primary importance for young girls as early as going, as early as they're playing the game, got to be serving well. What does that look like? Lots of managing the overhead space really well at a young age, understanding the feeling of the racket making contact with the ball overhead, feeling very balanced with the feet, evolving the grip when you've got a good structure and good balance in how you serve bringing the body into the service, you have all those things in place and then gradually building the more complex elements of the serve as, as time goes by. But really getting the fundamental principles of the serve well at an early age, absolutely critical. And I believe that's where, again, the game will head yeah. is that you know everyone said, well, female players will become big servers just like the men. Well, it hasn't really happened yet. But I think in five to 10 years time, I think all players will serve as well as currently your best players serving on tour secondly you're then going to have return and you know you're going to have the need to neutralize an effective first serve but my goodness you're going to need to attack second serve hard and that again is a trend that i think won't go away anytime soon um but again i don't see that as a massively different trend to um the men but i guess my view on this is that you've either got to have a real weapon be that yeah. serve, be that a big heavy strike. You've got to have a really obvious way of winning a point. So take a Naomi Osaka as an example. I think we can all immediately kind of light bulb goes on, big serve, a heavy striking, clear yeah. weapons. Or you kind of go to the other end of the extreme where you've got maybe an Ash Barty, a Sophia Kennan, a Sloane Stevens, somebody like that, which is also a completely different looking player to what 
Naomi Osaka is. Yeah. But if you look at the stats overall for an Ash Barty, yes, everyone says she's got a nice flair and she's got a nice feel and she comes forward and she volleys a lot. But you look and I bet you'd find she'd be in probably in the top five tour out. Serve one, serve two, return one, return two. Forehand winners, backhand winners, net approaches. So suddenly to be really effective in that game style, you've got to be pretty much good or ticking the box in all areas. So if you think about that then from a development perspective, you're saying, right, well, has my player got something? Is there a big weapon here? So can I find good in the player that's in front of me? And I think that's really important. Is there a clear area that's a big weapon that's a way for this player to win a point? And I can develop everything else, but I can find good and that's the route I can kind of go down. Or is that more rounded kind of all-core player that excels in so many things? And again, gradually over time, you can build weapons that come from that game, you know, that, that approach. Yeah. But you don't have any obvious limitation. And of course, that becomes a slightly different kind of take or perspective yeah. on ultimately what the numbers and the statistics that you're saying to me actually mean. So as I say, I, I see it almost two ends. Clearly starting the point is never going to go away. And that's got to be critical serve and return for the reasons we've just discussed. But then when you look at it more generally, I think you've got to be going down that weapons and finding good and really kind of building a game around that. Or it's that element of, well, I can be really solid as an all-core player, but God, I've got to be good at a lot of things to really kind of be able to beat good players consistently. And again, in my take, that's a lot why we're starting to see more all-core players emerge or what you'd say players with more variation. It's a bit of yin and yang, isn't it? That, yeah. you know, you've got, well, as a Naomi Osaka comes through or a, I guess even a Serena to an extent, the way she's played over so many years, the big serving and the big striking. Yeah. Well, ultimately the trend has to counter that. Yeah. And that's why you've got your Ash Barty, I think, or your Sophia Kennan doing so well at the minute, or even yeah. your Sviantec. It's kind of countering that approach. But I think as it goes forward, you see probably a twin approach from those kind of big serving aggressive baseliners and the all-court players as yeah. we're looking to build and develop players for the future. Yeah. But there's also slightly different components, I think, in how you look at a player around which of those two um, scenarios they could go down. Yeah. Um, Good. The one, the one stat that always stands out for me as well, because again, I've, I've looked into this because I, I think we can be lazy. We can be lazy to use this whole WTA, ATP, women's, men's. Do you know what I think? We're ultimately, we're coaching a person you know, whatever, whatever their sex is at the end of the day. Like I, yeah. I've coached more males that would come under, that would come under the, be careful because females are very sensitive. I've coached more males that have been like that than I have blinking females. Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's quite a, but yeah, but the, the one that I look at is I, I, I always look at kind of this, I call it the 105% rule. You know, and basically to win at any level, you have to be winning at least 105% of your 200% games, 100 of serve, 100 of return. And, and I'm always fascinated of how you get to that 105. And actually in 2019, Pliskova, granted she's the highest on the WTA tour, held serve 79% of times and Dan Evans held 77 <laughs> You know, so, so again, it can be a bit lazy as well. I think... Of, of, of us as coaches in general, you know, um, whereas Ash Barty, I think it holds about 66, 67, you know, so I, I kind of see a variance of about 10% between the, between the men's and women's game when it comes to probably 10% more breaks and, and 10% less holds as, as such kind of across the board. And that's also brings me into another one that I 
and I think we've discussed this on the balcony at Glasgow before. Um, and I, I share a quick story of Roger Federer in the changing rooms at French Open. Um, Paul Anacom was coaching him, and it was a set and five two or set and four two to Sybil Kova. And Roger was kind of watching the TV with the juniors. And Anacom came up to him, come on, old man, time to get yourself warmed up. And he went, Sybil Kova does this to me all the time. <laughs> he said, this is going for a while. This is going for a while. And, and ended up, Sybil Kova ended up going to the third set. And, you know, Roger had a, an extra hour to get, to get himself ready. But again, for me, that kind of, that perception that in women's tennis, lots of leads are given up is I would also put that down to a bit like probably men on a clear court. When the serve is less dominant, when someone starts to feel a bit of pressure and momentum shifts and maybe the pattern shifts of the, of the match, three or four games is relatively easy to make up. Whereas if you're watching Karlovic play John Isner, set and five one is done. <laughs> you know, whereas, whereas in the women's game, it doesn't always seem to be as done. I don't know what yeah. you think of that. Well, I'm going to come back to that because I just want to pick up on something you said in the previous point around, I think you're touching on the gender differences between coaching men and women when we talked about the tactical yeah. side. But I think you said something that's really important and that is in effect, you're coaching the performer. You're coaching the person in front yeah. of you. And, you know, definitely I heard so much early on working in women's tennis around this. And, you know, it's the, you need to communicate really well, explain things really well, be prepared to... I'll, have, I'll be asked more questions about why connecting the little bits to the big bits, make sure that you give feedback critically at the right moment. Um, make sure you're giving real support in stressful or difficult or challenging situations. Well, as you read that out, isn't that good coaching? And, you know, I think that it's, I think it, at times you can kind of go down this, well, there's a real big difference, but actually I think that as your natural coaching style sometimes works better with male or female players, but I don't think that's gender specific. I think it's as much linked to the individual in front of you and absolutely coaching the person first should be at the heart of, yeah. of, of coaching in general. Point that you made before, you're just talking and describing momentum. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember when in the Fed Cup tie we played against Kazakhstan at the Copper Box last year or 2019, yeah, 2019, it's still just last year. Joe Conta was down 4-1 in the third. Yulia Patinsa had a point for 5-1 in the third. And it's probably game over. Joe Conza hits a forehand on the run. I mean, it's a shot she probably makes one in fifty. Now she'll probably kill me for saying that. But it was a, if you if you see the forehand that it is, it's an unbelievable lights out forehand which she makes, and she goes on to win seven five in the third. Now I would contest that that's around a momentum swing as much as it is a men's or women's tennis scenario. And I guess it goes back to the previous point too, though, that if 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 serving is less dominant on the women's side currently than the men, then there's more equal points. Therefore, momentum plays as big a part as anything else. So again, I would, it's like if you and me go and play a first to 11 out of the hand, you go up in an unlikely scenario, you go up 7-1. I'm kind of clawing my way back in this 7-3, 7-4, 7-5. Suddenly you're getting a bit tight, right? Because the serve is gone, you've not got a quick way of working and I'm going to be scurrying and make you play more balls. Short slice is coming in at this point. <laughs> but, you know, but, but it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's, course, it's yeah. momentum. Momentum is such a key part of it. And yes, maybe it's more prevalent in, in women's tennis. But, you know, I don't think it's something certainly that I've ever okay thought about and you coach it differently because it's just a core part of the game. Yeah, well, I, and I guess to go back to my point, I said 
I see it with males more on clay courts because the server's left less prevalent. But I think again that kind of perception is oh it's because females are so emotional, <laughs> they're so emotional, and 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 again I go back to that and and grant I mean I've probably worked with seven, eight, nine players that have played WTA 300 or better, 350, and probably similar on the men's side. And I honestly, I don't have a trend on that. I don't, you know, I can, I've got girls who we talk about farts and football at a mealtime. And I've got guys who I talk about some kind of emotions and, you know, how they're getting on with the girlfriend. Do you know, it's yeah. like, you know, maybe back traditionally, and I just think the world's changing so quickly, and 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 I think, the, I guess the chat, my challenge to to me, to you, Betsy, to to coaches out there, is we need to just continue going with this modern world, and we've got to be really careful not to look back to the cave ages, which even if we go 15, 20 years, we were very good at labelling, boys are like this, girls are like that, this person's yeah. like that, that person's like that, and it's like, just I can't stress it enough. Get to know, get to know that person. And, and, and I think what I wanted, I suppose, from this chat is what I think we've got here is that it's, it's about the individual and, and let's try and get away a little bit away from just tarring women's tennis with that brush and men's tennis with that brush. Yeah. You said it person first. Um, but you know, I think there was a, there was a good moment in time for that debate. And again, I go back to that 2007, 2008 female tennis journey work, you know, because it made people think. Yeah. And again, if that has a positive impact, if, you know, people do consider that there may be, you know, it could be a male or a female, an emotional response, losing yourself serving for the match. Yeah. <laughs> Deal yeah. with it. You're there to coach. Yeah. But at the same time, there is a body of research which will describe differences in boys and girls, men and women. There is enough research out there that talks about different ways to, handling stress or emotions or relationships there is research out there that will give you all that information until you know you're bored and don't want to read anymore but the premise is the same coach the person understand everything that goes behind it but you're coaching a person not a gender yeah. no absolutely and the one actually uh, the other topic that certainly i've become a lot more comfortable with as i've got older as a male coach and and it goes again back to the person and the connection with that person is then periods the, the way that a woman's body works, you know, the, the way that we need to also understand that as coaches, you know, there is going to be times where, where the body could break down a little bit more. There is going to be times where there is more hormones that are in, that are in play, you know, and, and, and I guess that would be a big one. I know Judy's spoken, uh, been quite outspoken about this. And I think quite often a male coach doesn't want to go down that, don't want to go down that route. I don't know. I don't want to talk about periods. It's a really difficult conversation. And, mm -hmm. and it's certainly the, the last two or three girls I've worked with, having those, that openness, but not forcing it on, on, on yeah. the girl to talk about it, but just naturally as you build that relationship, that would certainly be a difference <laughs> that I, that I would see that you, that you're dealing with or just some something else that comes out and something that certainly I think we need to be better educated on. Yeah, and again, it's person first and it's building a relationship with a player whereby you can have dialogue, which is open and, and, and honest. Yeah. Um, and again, that's the responsibility of the coach to build a relationship where the player is ready to talk or, or not. Yeah. I think the, the interesting part of that point is that we... I think this area generally is under-researched in sport, 
Yep. Because again, there's an emerging trend or information that there's of course increased risk of injury during yep. a certain stage of the cycle, or there's different impact on training different elements such as coordination at a certain stage in the cycle. Yep. And the more, whether we're male coaches or female coaches, it, again, to me, that is not the point. The point yep. is how are we as coaches delivering the best possible program and development plan for our player? And clearly there are other considerations, but we need to know how they impact a player and we plan accordingly. And that is, again, in my view, it's not only education, but it's actually still emerging information that we need to learn more about, I guess, across sport, not just tennis. Very good. The pinnacle of tennis, in my opinion, and I would imagine your opinion is Wimbledon, but there's a bigger thing than tennis, the sport. The pinnacle of sport is is the Olympics. Yeah, you've and you've um, been very lucky, fortunate, but also have earned that right to to be the team leader for for the GB tennis team out in Rio, um, and I believe are due to do that also in Tokyo as well, which has been taken away from you this year. But hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed, that will happen next year. Um, yeah. What? Tell me about that. Tell me about the thrill of that role. Tell me what that role entails. Tell me about that journey. Well, it's certainly a thrill. I mean, that's for sure, Dan. I mean, you know, when we're talking off air, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, starting off playing the game, the thought of going to an Olympic Games, even though it's not the pinnacle, the ultimate pinnacle of tennis, it's still such a shop window for sport. Um, and it's both the most thrilling and also the most frustrating role that I have. Okay. Um, it's the most thrilling role in the sense that, I mean, how can I ever forget being part of the chef de mission telling Andy Murray that he was going to carry the flag into an opening ceremony at Olympic Games and being part of that group of people well, you know, marching into a stadium behind him. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that particular moment. Or, you know, Andy winning gold in Rio, which again, fortunate enough to see firsthand and have been part of that time in, in Brazil and, and knowing everything that had gone into that for him, yep. for the team, for his team in London, not just those of us that were on the ground in Brazil. I mean, how on earth could I ever dream of anything more? Um, but the Olympic environment is very, very different to, I guess, the normal tennis environment. You know, you yep. think about this, it was the way they, people describe it, there's 35 sports or so all with their own world championships in the same city at the same time. Logistically, it's very difficult. The event is run not by the tennis authorities, it's run by the IOC. Yeah. And so, so if you compare it to a Davis Cup or a Fed Cup, for example, you know, in a Davis Cup or a Fed Cup team, you're not constrained by the number of support staff that you have with you. Yeah. You can pretty much take as many as you like. And of course, we do that very well, as you know, from our Davis Cup and our Fed Cup teams. Yet the number of people you can put environment at the Olympics is determined by the number of athletes that Team GB qualifies, not just the number of ones that tennis qualifies, yeah. but the number that Team GB qualifies. Because there's some complicated algorithm which works out how many accreditations that you get. So you end up in the environment with four or five people yeah. across you know, seven or eight players. And of course, that doesn't sound like too much of a hardship when you describe it like that. But compared to the way players generally are used to working, you're suddenly in a, an environment where there's much greater responsibility on each person to work across many different areas. Um, so it's, it's, it's both a, a thrill for the obvious reasons, but you can imagine that sitting behind that, there's, there's a lot of logistical challenges that go to make that team really work. Um, and in Rio, it, went, it was obviously brilliant. We had Leon from the men's side, we had Jeremy Bates on the women's side, Louis Caillet 
double side and then a physio and and that's just working across the entire group but it is just an amazing thing i mean you know you you walk into an olympic village and it's it's like nothing else you'll ever experience um so yeah i'm very lucky to have that role i'm ready for the hardship of tokyo betsy if if anybody any of your trusted members drop i can take it i can take three or four players all on I work, I, I already work from six till six till midnight. So my hat's in the ring, man. You take my point. I re- you know what I'm saying. I'm, it's, um, yeah. It's, I, that's it's, not a dig at your point. That's me trying to, that's trying to get me to realise one of my ambitions one day, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it is great. And, and like I said up front on that, it's such an honour to do. It's like, all the things that we've talked about, it's such an honour to be in the role I'm currently in. It's an honour to be part of the Fed Cup team, but the Olympics really is something that's, that's extra special. Oh, amazing. What, what an, no one will ever take that experience away, you know, that's for sure. Um, British tennis, the the t- much talked about subject, I guess, with British tennis. And obviously yeah. you've you've been involved in, in lots of different capacities Um are, are very, you know, we had Leon on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And I, and I guess similar question to what I asked Leon really, you know, is what does success look like for you? You know, what's bottom line for you, Ian Bates, head of women's tennis? What are your success measures? And, and yeah, how, do, how does that look? Um, well, success is oh, multi-layered, isn't it? I mean, I think there's an obvious answer and there's probably a, a more de- a detailed answer. I mean, the obvious answer is we're about helping to develop players through the pathway and having more players at each stage of the pathway to really reflect a, a healthy system that makes us a, you know, a respected nation um, for player development. So what does that look like? More players in the main draw of junior, junior slams, main draw of grand slams. Yep. You know, you look at the... Um, you know, you look at the last couple of years and see Joe Conta has achieved huge things in the game. You know, semi-final of three slams, uh, won multiple titles, been ranked number four in the world. You know, she, she's had such an amazing career, which sometimes we, we, we overlook. But what a great role model for that next group of players coming through. And Heather, who, again, has, you know, achieved numerous tour titles, been in and around the top 50 for many years and has been a mainstay in, in Grand Slams for us. But the real success for me over the next three to five years is transitioning that next group of players from where they currently sit, maybe between 150 and 300, and taking the players from that stage of the pathway to the next one. So by those players, who do I mean? Harriet Dark, Katie Bolter, Fran Jones, Jodie Burridge, Emma Raducanu, Katie Swan. Now, there's a group of girls there that we can transition more of those into the main draw slams. That is a success with that group. At the same time, we want more players playing Grand Slam qualifying. And it's the same story. You know, again, going to Melbourne this year in qualies, we had Harriet Dar, Sam Murray and Nate Baines. That's three players. Well, again, hopefully you want them to move to the next step and the next players to then replace them, maybe coming from that same group. You get my drift. You want more players playing in junior slams. And I think that's the way that we can, is the overall way we've got a ranking system. We've got ways of measuring how players are progressing. And players coming through, I think, is the ultimate way that we've got a healthy and thriving pathway. I think the second part is, you know, it, it's, it's again as much around, I guess, how we are and I guess how we build our relationships with our players and I guess how we're perceived. You know, and I think that 
Um, that's a, another thing that I think is a huge challenge. And it's obviously not the easiest thing to do well, as, as you know. Um, but it's about how we do that and how we support players, how we work with players, how we're able to influence players. Um, and yeah, how we are able to support people to transition through each stage of their career. And is the Federation, in this case, the, the LTA, is their job to facilitate that? Is the accountability around the facilitation of that and the, the support around that, or is it in the actual development of that? Because I think they're two different things. And I think it's probably both, isn't it? I mean, clearly, the, if I understand your question well, the facilitation part of it is us to make sure we've got good programs at each stage of the pathway that players can be part of. And that's a core part of my day-to-day -day work with players that would be on the pro scholarship program. For example, one of our main programs around taking players and helping them work towards the top 100. And then there's obviously the question of where and how do our coaches work with players and is that coaching them or is it not coaching them? And it's of course the age old centralized v decentralized question. Um, and, you know, at some point I think that's a small hybrid it's finding that balance between the two. Yeah. So, yeah, so we had Dave Samuel on the podcast and obviously Dave, Dave talks very, very strongly. He's got, you know, his experienced opinions that he has. And, and I know for, for him, his take, as people will hear on the podcast, is very much around federations. And we're not just talking about the LTA here, we're talking about global federations, that their job should be to be in place to, to purely be facilitators, you know, if they are a federation that has has finance, you know, and so Grand Slam Nations obviously will have more finance, that that finance is used in more of like a bonus scheme system to actually try and get the cream to rise rather than a selection system, you know, if, if actually we think you're the ones, yeah. what's, what's your take on that? probably where I started and that's it's a hybrid of both in my view I mean I think that the the bonus scheme as it currently stands you know as actually has maintained its life it's fluctuated in its value um, but I think it's very much something that has been part of our response to the COVID scenario and I think that's reminded us in many ways of the value and the importance of that by having a bonus scheme that's meaningful you're giving players a real opportunity both to compete and then to earn and if you can combine those two things together, you're going to have more players coming through the rankings, aren't you? Because the more players earn, the, by definition, the more ranking points that they've, that they've earned over time. And I think the other side of that, in my view, is that that's to, to help. The, the journey is so challenging. The journey is very expensive, as, as, as you well know. Therefore, to have a means with which you can try your best to invest in those that you feel are most likely it also makes sense. Now, that's also a very open statement that I make about those most likely because how on earth do we do that job? And of course, it's not easy in making judgments between players of different ages and what their potential actually is. But I think the job for us in that is, is to where we can ensure to make sure things are done as well as they can be for those that we feel can progress because ultimately if they aren't able to do so, they're not able to access the right coaching, the right schedule, whatever that may be. But then a real healthy system looks after that wider group of players where it's competitions in the UK, it's prize money opportunities in the UK, it's things like the tournament bonus scheme. And I think one of the big positives that came from the COVID time was the amount of tournaments there were in the UK during the course of the summer. 
and the number of prize money earning opportunities that there were. You know, one of these stats, I hope, there's almost a million pounds available for players during the course of the summer. Now, if you're able to sustain those two approaches, then I think you're achieving both. You're creating enough in the home market that players can play and earn to be able to invest in themselves. And you're trying to make sure that those where you think you can make the biggest influence or make the most gains, you can. And I think that finding the balance between those two is ultimately a very challenging thing because the minute you make selections, there's going to be some on the right side of it, some on the wrong side of it. Our job is to run and execute that as well and as openly and as transparently as we can. But at the same time, making sure that we're looking after that broader group. And that's at times the flip-flop that we have to debate internally around how do we get the best value for the investments that we're able to make. Yeah. And if if I go back actually to my... Um, earlier on in the talk about you being a northerner so you've been <laughs> you've been from Darlington so if I go back to so I'm now working in Darlington okay what I think and again this and I have to stress this when I have these conversations this is absolutely not digging at any single person and I think it's the it's the, the you know the 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 LTA as a as a as a whole you know, is is doing a fantastic job, and it's and it's 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 up to a hiding for nothing. It's never going to keep everyone happy, you know. And I think the individuals within it do, are do are doing brilliant jobs. But if I go, I think this is one of the bigger problems that we have within our within our sport, which I think Spain do well. If I'm working in Darlington, the motivation traditionally the motivation for me to really work my absolute socks off to develop player after player after player after player when i just know that they're going to be taken off my hands and and at different times there's different different things that have happened but they're going to be taken off my hands to go to whether it's bisham abbey which is back in my day you know queens back in my day ntc what I'm about to say here, you don't even have to comment on because it's not something you can comment on. But JTC, which which from, from an outsider's view seems very clearly to be part of a decentralized, centralized approach. Now, in terms of why would I, where's my motivation? Why, why wouldn't I just work as a coach to just make some money and look after my family? Whereas in Spain, because the Federation isn't there, <laughs> It's not in this position. It's not really even facilitating. It's certainly not developing. Then the coaches that are the most motivated are the ones that actually just have to, they work their socks off and they create their players and they are fully accountable. If the player goes on to a different academy, they go on to a different academy. But I think the age old issue is that these coaches do that and then maybe feel like the players then taken off their hands. So then they become cynical (laughs) And then this whole, the whole thing just becomes a bunch of cynical coaches who are then bashing, which is again, so lazy to do, but the LTA, the bloody LTA, you know, and just bash, bash, bash. Um, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. So in terms of progression, players going from one site to the other, is that the long and short of that? Yeah, so I think, I think what I, I think, no, I think the long and short of it is, is if, if the if players have been selected within a system, yeah. we're talking about players here. How? What about the coaches? Because the coaches are the ones. Do you know the the and I think they, they, I think the coaches can be un, underlooked sometimes with that. Well, 
And I guess at different stages of the pathway, of course, that's probably a different question, isn't it? Because if you look at how, for example, we built the PSP, uh, the Pro Scholarship Programme, sorry, careful of using LTA acronyms, um, you know, that is an option to invest money for you to work with a coach that you are choosing to work with um, in order to best fit your progression. I guess the question around if you're at the age of 13 or 14 and you've got a decision, do I go to a national academy or do I stay where I am? You know, it's a difficult decision, isn't it? I mean, you know, again, it'd be no different to the decision that who used to coach you? Was it, was it? John Willis. Bob Willis. I was John yeah. Willis. John Willis. John, yeah. Bob, yeah. Bob's a cricketer, right? Um, It's the same decision because you've got to find, if the player decides to go to the National Academy, then clearly there's the advantages of that. You're getting access to best with best training and sparring. So again, if I think back to my younger days, I couldn't have done if I didn't go to Bath. I was playing two times a week with my coach. My parents were driving me to Bisham three days a week to play with you lot. It's very difficult to manage in that scenario. So there's the clear advantage of it. But if players either don't choose to go, well, there needs to be some way of supporting players to stay outside the system, but also not doing it to mean players don't move on. But the question is around coaching. Well, clearly there's got to be a way of motivating coaches to pass players on if that's the right thing for the player and the coach. And I guess there's also ultimately something for the LTA or whether it's the National Academies to do well, where there is an incentive I don't mean that necessarily as a financial incentive. It's the opportunity to be in and around things that people, whether they're experienced, their experiences, or it's financing, or it's, I don't know, there's got to be a way that we can be innovative in, in taking coaches with us at that point, because those decisions I think will exist whether there's an LTA route or not. And I'm sure it's the same in Spain for you, Dan, that there's gonna be players that can work in an environment to a point where they either stay or by moving, there's something for them which is different to what they were getting in the original place. They don't have it in Spain, honestly. And this is this is where I think my headspace changes because there isn't really a national any national account. There's nothing in Spain. It's like it's just mm. it's just a bunch of private coaches, really, private academies that 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 are kind of doing their thing. And I I, I just feel too much and and seems to go through the LTA is, 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 a, is a feeling that I would have, yeah. which is where I would err on the side of, if it's a facilitator, then, then it's, it, there's more accountability than on players and individual coaches, ultimately to go and grab those opportunities. Whereas mm-hmm. I almost think too many people sit back and go, well, the LTA should do that. Sit tournaments, LTA should do that. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and and I don't know. I don't think there's necessarily a, a simple answer to that. And I'm probably going down some some rabbit holes that aren't even worth going down right now. But that's that would I guess be where my almost comparison is coming from. You know, I I see really highly motivated coaches everywhere in Spain, everywhere, like absolutely everywhere, because they have to, because they. Because because they because they really have to, and it's like if they don't absolutely do this amazing job, and they don't go and watch them at tournaments, and they don't jump on the you know the the, the whole journey, then there's so many other private academies that will will happen, and, yeah. and 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 I guess that's where I'd love to see, and I don't I certainly don't have the answer, but I would love to see that 
happen in the UK, and I'm sure there's lots of reasons why it doesn't quite happen in that way. Um, that probably. So, having spent the years you have in Spain, sorry, not wanting to flip this around the other way, what would you do then? How would you take your lessons in Spain and apply them in the UK, given everything you know about tennis in this country? Yeah, competition structure would would be would be very very high up. You know, I think I think having having a competition structure that that allows allows people to to compete at all levels on a on a regular basis, I think would be. So if I take Federation of Andalusia, there's 362 tournaments a year that that are gen that are genuine tournaments for an eight-year-old through or seven-year-old through to somebody 500 ATP or WTA. All um, outside, I assume. All outside. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, all outside in certainly in this part of Spain. Yeah. yeah. Which, is, which is a massive part. I know, I know that that's a massive part, you know, around yeah. facilities. I would, I would definitely, I think accountability is the word for me uh, it, it, that, that really, that really stands out of like, I think there's too much put on the LTA. That's me supporting the the LTA as an organisation. I I think too many people sit back and think, oh well, the LTA should do that, mm -hmm. or 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 the LTA. Well, oh, there's no tournaments. Why are the tournaments not putting on? Why they? Which which I know and you know to put on a futures event is 50, 60, 70 grand, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know. But it's but but. Because it, it, I think that because it, it almost sits there as a, as, a, as a federation that people know have money, I think a lot of people become very lazy and, and just put it all onto the LTA. Now, you know, there's all these amazing things that, that, that try to happen, whereas in a country like Spain, it's a bit third world Spain, you know, it just doesn't have the resource. So if, if I want to put on a futures, so we put on a tournament last week, I, we got a sponsor who put... 10 15 grand in and we ran a tournament 65 players a thousand euros for the winner you know i'm not look, i wasn't looking around going can i get some money off the spanish federation because i know it's not an option yeah <laughs> I, I know that that's not an option i'm not so, so then actually as as human beings we're capable of things you mm -hmm. know and I, and I think some of that is stunted i think some of that growth is is stunted a little bit with certain people because they get into this this way of just expecting i do i do think the border scheme and having more accountability on results and and actually players i think what's happened and i can't comment on now bits but i think what's certainly happened in my era and what happened 10 years ago is i think a lot of players don't really know if they want to be tennis players because mm -hmm. they uh, receive funding from an early age yeah. and, and that's just they go on that journey they go on that journey and then funding's taken away at 1920 oh, well I don't want to play anyway screw that rather than you know I, I do like the idea of that carrot being there and and you know in Spain I don't believe that there's that that carrots there in terms of, in terms of from the federation but that yeah. carrots there in terms of if you want to make money from this sport you better win a lot and you better get to to this place so I think there's naturally there's naturally a higher motivation and drive from players and coaches to 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 do that um so so I guess that's a game where I would say having having this bonus scheme that across the board for coaches and for players that yeah. really runs through and that's the funding that is the funding process 
you know, that is that the funding process is, you know, you are ranked this in the world ITF or you, you know, you cross a certain ranking. And again, I'm jumping into maybe Steve stealing a couple of Dave's ideas because it's fresh speaking to him. But, <laughs> I, but, I, but I certainly that that definitely resonates with me. Um, and yeah, I, I would say though, but the two the two main things would be around competition structure and around having accountabilities there that if people want to do it, it should be hard. It's hard. It's hard, you know, and I, and I think that's, again, I can't, I'm not involved now, so it's hard for me to comment on what, what's happening, have happening currently, and it's, cert it's certainly not a negative, but that those would be certainly some of my learnings. No, that's good. That's why I asked the question, because it's, you know, it's a, it's a different culture or context, isn't it, that, that you describe so articulately, um, you know, and and I think the bit around competition, I think, is something everybody certainly here would totally agree with, whether that's, you know, I mean, I'm going through it now with my nine-year-old daughter, you know, how does she access competition where she's loving it, she comes away buzzing and yeah. she can get enough matches and she's playing with her friends and, and it's part of her identity. And then how do you then build a competition structure then that transitions from interested player to performance player? And then at the top end, the bit around great to have more tournaments wouldn't it but you hit the nail on the head there's the expectation well it's not it's an expectation Dan I think it's just the way things have always been done mm -hmm. so it's a cultural norm that the LTA um, invests in tournaments and you quoted the figures which are even higher this now because of the Covid protocols yeah, you've yeah. got to put in place and it is a challenge but clearly Leon and I would sit here and say of course we want more tournaments for many reasons you know not only does it mean players can play without traveling so it's cheaper it means your coaches can be at the tournament with you which is such a key part of it you know, it's giving equal opportunity to everybody, not just those that are getting either funding or support. So look, I think I think you're right. And, you know, it's always good to hear Dave use your views and whoever it may be, because they're all valid and everyone's got a lifetime in British tennis. Um, and the more we're able to work together and share ideas and understand the, the, the fours and the against or the constraints and what's possible together, then I think we all understand each other more, more effectively. And I think that's certainly something that this does. And I think also the way we work together across the system is important. Very good. Give me a couple of stories, your best experiences. You've touched on Olympics. We haven't gone too much into Fed Cup, but obviously you've had some great experiences there in, 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 in different roles. Um, you fire away. What you got <laughs> for us? Um, yeah, Rio one, obviously massive. Um, Fed Cup, I mean, I've been involved for a number of years. I've had some massive highs, um, two ones that stand up and whether they're stories or not. I mean, to me, going back to play Fed Cup in Bath was something really special for me. Um, it was special because it was the first time in 25 years, I think, a Fed Cup tie had been in the UK. And having been through the ups and downs of never getting a home tie, that just felt special because it was, in effect, my spiritual home is a bit deep, but you know what I mean? It's somewhere where I've grown up as we've covered on this and, and having the chance to go back in this job and working there and be able to share that whole experience with them and my wife and my daughter there. And it was just something that was one of the first times I've had the chance to experience that and share it. Um, as I say, the stories are more the, the very late nights finishing at one o'clock or 12 o'clock in the morning and getting to bed at whatever time it is because of the lateness of the start of those events you know felt really sorry for the boys and leon when they were complaining about the zonal phase of the finals last year well that's something that 
on the women's side in the Fed Cup zonal phase we've done for, for years and, and years. But the second standout Fed Cup memory is the tie in the copper box last year, because that was proper. Yeah. That was the first real arena tie at home that, that we'd played in, you know, and I think we'd lost in that stage of the competition as well. I think I'd been part of a way losing ties at that stage of the competition in Sweden, Argentina, Romania, Japan. So to have that home arena tie with 6,000 people on an Easter weekend where there was just this demographic of hundreds of families there enjoying their weekend watching tennis and then watching the, the tie was epic. And again, I don't know how much you probably remember, but on the first night, Bolt's almost beating Patintifa to take a 2-0 lead. Um, then having to pick her up to then either play or not play the next day um, based on her physicality. Then Joe being 4-1 down, almost 5-1 down in the third set against Patintifa to be 2-1 down. Then you're looking at best case scenario, it's 2-2. And then it's doubles. And then when Fed Cup with the doubles being the fifth rubber, you never really know what you're going to get when it comes to doubles in, in Fed Cup. So I guess that becomes a high because of the outcome, but the anxiety that kind of went through that weekend was, was off the scale. But just the pride there of, of winning that tie, getting back to the world group, the first time we've done that, the first time in front of 6,000 people in an arena in the UK. I mean, they're moments that you don't ever forget, Dan, and they're not stories, they're experiences. Um, absolutely you know but wow they're, they're they're some of the special times that, that that we're privileged to be part of and i think so important for those ties again for british tennis for inspiring the next generation and for for young girls to see that to, to for young girls to to feel that their superheroes are doing that on that stage you know and i know you've got a daughter i've got two daughters you know and it, we it, it is a massive thing for like i remember Obviously, living in Spain, we're, we're not as close to that. But when England England football team were in the semi-finals, and it was so lovely. And my my eldest daughter, she was for like every day. She had a little chart. She knew exactly when the matches were. She'd come home, Daddy. Yeah. Russia play Finland tonight, you know. And if Russia beat Finland, then you know, and then and like, do you think England could beat USA? You know, like really, you could see that's where the passion grows. And I guess as as males that that we are and white males that we are you know very privileged we've had so much of that in our life you know thrown fro in our face and mm -hmm. and and i and i don't think there's as much of that for young girls out there so being able to have that and grow the sport from there you know i really hope there can be more ties in in future because it, it was really special to see i didn't miss a ball in bath i, I was in tunisia I think I was saying this to... Good stamina. What's that? Good stamina then. Yeah, well, but I lit, no, literally because I, I was in Tunisia and Evan was playing and he was he was in the routine. He did very well. So we were kind of going in, you know, do, warming up, playing his match, winning, going back, maybe doubles, a little bit on the court. And then we'd go out for dinner and I'd get back and I was in my little kind of crappy apartment in Tunisia somewhere hoping that I wasn't going to have someone knock my door down and went straight on the Facebook live and yeah. I would just sit there and watch it for hours and it was just brilliant I thought you're yeah, absolutely brilliant yeah you're right I mean the example my daughter was obsessed by it I mean she was lucky enough to be there um, yeah. and actually they came to Bratislava this year when we played in Slovakia with guess what three of her friends who had both right. been at the ties in Bath and the Copper Box 
And if you ever want a real kind of illustration of the impact that that has through your own daughter is, is huge. My daughter, I'm embarrassed to say this, she still has a poster on a wall of Harriet Bolts, Joe. She's got a, like a collage on her, on her door. You see she that behind a... me? I'm in my boys' room. You might see yeah. a Newcastle sign, but that's Jamie Murray with, with Marty when they played in Punta Romano down the road. Yeah. And, and it's just, so, I mean, you know, the fact I see a poster of everybody I've dealt with at work all day when I'm putting <laughs> yeah, my yeah. daughter to bed is a bit of a trigger. But, you know, the power of it, you know, she's got, yeah, like I say, it's, it's, it's amazing to see it through your, through your own kids. But again, it's, it's again one of those moments you take a step back and you realise the impact of, of the work that we're privileged to be, to be part of. But the bottom line for women's tennis is, look, we've got a great role model in Joe. We've got somebody in Heather that's been at the top of the game. We've got that great group coming through. We need more players at the top of the game to create more memories like that in Fed Cup that ultimately inspires however many young girls to pick up the tennis racket and stay in the game. And, and you know, you, you kind of just want that to be then the, the, the yeah. source of the pipeline for, for future years. And we can do it, but it just needs platforms like that. Percy. You didn't need to come on this show today and you've come on and you've you've dealt with some of my my um tornadoes that have that have come at you you've you've spoken extremely well you've shared openly honestly again and that's nothing different to any other time that i've spoken to you you know and when i've dealt with you in in different roles as you coming in as the stakeholder of a, of a player that i've worked with and and i'm really pleased that the listeners will get to get to know you a bit better you know and get to see that there's some real proper human beings that are in these roles that are working their socks off day in day out to to try and create fantastic opportunities and environments and 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 i'm sure that People are going, it's going to come across incredibly well and people are really going to see that side of you. So thank you very much um, for coming on. We do have our quick fire to, to, end, to end the show. I was going to say it's an absolute pleasure, but let's see what you've got for me to finish then. Very easy, very easy. <laughs> hard courts or clear courts? As a player or as a hard courts every time? Your favourite slab? Ooh. Melbourne. Serena or Venus? Serena. Serve or return? Return. At the net or at the back? You don't need me to answer that. <laughs> Sorry, at the net, at the back or on the fence? <laughs> <laughs> on the fence is good. Uh, <laughs> should there be an injury timeout or not? Yes. Data analysis or not? Yes. What's your favourite book? Favourite book was that? Um, Coming from Darlington, you should know the word book instead of book. <laughs> it was more the Wi-Fi, mate, rather than your accent. Favourite book? Path. North or South? Don't need to answer. South. You're a northerner, man. I can't believe that I found out today you're a northerner. I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe that you're a northerner after all this time. Um, one rule change that you would have in tennis? Um, no limits on wild cards on women's, in women's tennis. And who should our next guest be? 
Stuart Rhodes. Yes, let's get Rhodesy. Let's get Rhodesy <laughs> on. Uh, Beatty, honestly, mate, brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate you giving all that time up. I've absolutely loved the chat. If everyone else thinks it was a bit boring, I apologise, but I thoroughly enjoyed it and have taken loads from it, so thank you. Pleasure, Ben. A big thank you to Ian Bates for giving up his time to come on to the show and hope you guys took lots from it. Look forward to hearing hearing from you guys um, on, yeah, any thoughts that you have uh, I do want to share actually a couple a couple of the reviews that we have received over over the last couple of weeks, which is fantastic on the on the Apple on the Apple podcasts. Um, one of them here is I'd give the series more stars if I could. A really fascinating insight into the world of tennis and transferable into everyday life. Um, every episode leaves you wanting more. And there's accreditation points for coaches too. And that's something I also just want to, want to mention. Somebody has told me uh, we are now on the LTAs list. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can listen to five minutes and you get all your accreditation points. But I think if you genuinely are listening, I think there's a tool in place where you have to write a report or a review of the podcast. And I think up to a certain number of credits, you can get towards your coach license points. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's fantastic to be recognized uh, for that and, you know, really appreciated that uh, the, the LTA have recognized that. And I think rightly so. You guys that are listening to these and taking all of that information away I certainly do believe it is. A, it's a great educational tool uh, for everyone. So yeah, so a little added bonus for you if you have been listening and you do need some accreditation points for your licenses as coaches, then get in touch with the LTA and you can get that sorted. Um, but yeah, no, and uh, I, I took a lot away from from Ian. Um, I definitely think we spoke off air after the podcast. There's, you know, he really is open to to hearing different points of view. And yeah, in, in, in an organisation such as the LTA, I certainly uh, don't envy the position that they're in. You know, and I think there's a very natural feeling of, of having to be defensive because so many people like to tar them with a bad brush. And I, I can't tell you how much I respect people like Ian for coming on and facing up to the questions, getting getting stuck in, having good, honest um, open discussion and taking those things on board so so thank you for that hope everyone else as well wherever you are in the world still testing times if you are listening to this during 2020 it's it's a testing time for us all and we've just got to all keep taking it day by day setting setting little as we call it the academy our little daily bill pay your daily bill let's keep looking for things to to be grateful for and, you know, before we know it, we'll be back on our feet. We'll be doing all the things we love, seeing the people that we love and, you know, really trying to appreciate everything that we do have in this world, uh, which I'm sure this time when we reflect will have brought that through for us all. So you guys take care of yourselves. Uh, keep getting in touch. Until then, I'm Dan Kiernan. My co-host is John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.